This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. When the Russians and the United States were going at each other in the beginning of the Cold War, uh, as nuclear weapons were developed and the United States got caught a little bit short, the Russians were much faster at jumping on the nuclear bandwagon than anybody expected them to be. The head of the program, General, uh, the, the general who was in charge of the Manhattan Project, thought in 1948 it would take the Russians eight years before they exploded their first nuclear weapon. So what do we have to worry about? Besides, they don't even have a means for reaching us. Well, it took them only a year after that. 1949 exactly. was the first uh, Soviet nuclear weapon. And they developed ICBMs, and people forget the reason we went to the moon was to show that we're as good as the Russians because... They had the first satellite, they had the first flight around the moon, they had the first animal in space, the first man in space, the first woman in space, the first to see the other side of the moon. Uh, we were getting creamed. And so the, you know, the program, the, the lunar, uh, the Apollo program was, was set up. Uh, but along the way, there were negotiations going on as they both recognized that uh, mutually assured destruction didn't seem a, a great way for the world to proceed. You hit me, I'll hit you back, and we'll both get destroyed. That's That doesn't make sense for any government. And I, I should mention that there was this enormous increase in the power of the nuclear weapons. The first one released the energy of about 16,000 tons of dynamite. That's in 1945. The first H-bomb in 1952 released the energy of 10 million tons of dynamite, and the Russians set up one, set off one, uh, a few years later, that released the energy of 57 million tons of dynamite. One stinking weapon. And I use that term advisedly. And we are back. That was uh, Stanton Friedman. Stanton, uh, I'm sad to say... uh, (laughs) I, I wish I'd, I'd I'd had him on the program more, uh, but that was his his uh, last appearance back in 2016. He was on with uh, Kathleen Marden, who of course is the uh, the niece of uh, Betty and Barney Hill, the great, uh, the most uh, famous alien abduction case, of course, involving Betty and Barney Hill. Kathleen, the niece, and uh, she and Stanton wrote, I believe, three books. Uh, together. Uh, Don Schmidt is with us, Roswell investigator and uh, a colleague and friend of Stanton Friedman. We pay tribute to Stanton tonight. Uh, Just a a heads up, coming up in the next hour, uh, Ross Allison will be with us from Seattle, paranormal investigator, author, stepping in last minute for Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who's uh, feeling a little ill tonight, but we'll be talking about haunted and cursed objects in the next hour. Uh, now, back to Don uh, Schmidt. Uh, I was just wondering, Don, 
you know, when you go to these UFO conferences and you've been to countless, I'm sure, and certainly Stanton as well, but there is a certain um, element of uh, these UFO conferences. Uh, let's say how, how to put it. Sometimes they, some, some people get out a little over their skis a bit, meaning, you know, uh, they're not just about the data. They're, they're making some wildly speculative claims about, you know, someone claiming that they've time traveled to Mars and, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of that, that I think undermines sort of the credibility uh, of the UFO arena, particularly, you know, when the mainstream media is paying attention. Did, was Stanton frustrated by that that kind of discussion? You know, when when people really sort of went, you know, over the bend, if you will. I don't know that I would use the word uh, frustration as much as that he tolerated the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things, like we, we we have the annual festival coming up in Roswell now, in in just a matter of weeks commemorating the 1947 incident. And for all the years we've had the, uh, the festival, this would be the second time Stan hasn't been there. And the first time was when he had his heart surgery a few years ago. And even then, we, uh, we, we piped in a, a speakerphone, and with an audience, you know, room full of people, you know, we brought Stan on in his condition and uh, brought him to tears that particular evening. And so I think because Stan knew he had the big story, that no matter what one would uh, proper as far as uh, proper as far as their own experiences or their own theories, that's all they were. In our case with Roswell, it's not a theory. We're talking historic fact. We're talking that there was indeed a press release that went out announcing that fact. All the witnesses, starting with Jess Marcel, just verified that first announcement. And so we just always looked at these were the, all the, the wannabes and the people that were trying to become relevant within a room where Roswell essentially sucked all the air out of the room because it was the granddaddy of all cases. And I think in that confidence, that, that level of just... Uh, assuredness that nothing was going to surpass Roswell unless somebody could present a piece of hardware, the real, you know, a piece of the, the actual ship, you know, from the, from the crash, that uh, we had the story. And uh, so the, the, the suggest frustration would suggest that uh, we were on an even, you know, even keel, that we were in, in the same race together. And I think Stan always realized that we were in a separate race. And, with our, and our race was, again, with The Undertaker. It wasn't with others proposing their own UFO stories. Well put. Well put. What did Stanton make? I mean, in the last couple of years, you know, he at least he got to live to see some real headway being made, particularly with the mainstream media. There's been a real sea change in the way that they are now covering uh, the UFO ET issue, particularly, of course, since the New York Times article in December 2017. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was he was he as sort of excited about that as I would imagine he might be? Well, we had often discussed 
the uh, very notion that, well, we see any type of disclosure, will there be any type of eminent announcement in either your lifetime, Stan, or even in my lifetime, that type of thing. And I think we had long concluded that uh, the, the possibilities were, were somewhat uh, remote. But you are, you are absolutely correct, Richard, that there's certain, there seems to be a change in especially the media. But, and what's, what's, you know, the amusing thing about the media is that, well, they're, they're just trying to catch up. They're just cu- trying to come up with speed, so to speak, because, you know, they're just repeating everything we've been saying for all these years. It's like, well, yeah, we told you so. And, and then you were treating us like this was just so much entertainment and uh, move on to the next story. I think you're, you're, you realize that it is, again, you're talking the biggest story of the millennium. And how can you not be interested? How can you not be captivated and uh, just fascinated by the possibilities? So I think in many respects, for Stan to have seen this now in the last year, that he could be much more confident that he played a heavy hand in bringing us to that, uh, that, that point in the history of, of UFOs, that no one, no one did more appearances, did more lectures, did more interviews than Stan Friedman. And so he, in many ways, led, led that effort. And as a result, I think... He leaves us in, in, in very good stead in that should it now happen, and uh, I still am doubtful that it will in my lifetime, but uh, I was wrong about Roswell being a skeptic, and I would love to be wrong about this. We have to re- we, 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 we remain cautiously optimistic that, as I often would hear, that the new order in the military wants this to come out that they too are frustrated over the fact that the old order was not passing it down to them. They were taking it with them to their graves, as many of the high-ranking officers, uh, you know, the arbiters of the cover-up with Roswell, they took it with them. And to me, that's the, the greatest tragedy in all of mankind, the fact that a handful of people have decided for all of us. And so I, I love the fact that you know, as one would say, that maybe now Stan has all the answers. But <laughs> I would like to believe Indeed. that he's now going to be pushing and giving us a little nudge once in a while in the right direction. Don, thank you so much. Wonderful tribute. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard, for the opportunity. I'd love to talk to you again soon, so look forward to it. We shall. Don Schmidt, UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson. Back with Ross Allison, Haunted Objects. When the Conspiracy Show continues. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant on Zoomer Radio. Well, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long haul truck, RV, taxi. Your parents' well-appointed rec room with the ping-pong table and the painting of dogs playing poker. That greasy spoon just off the interstate and your cabin in the woods. A big howdy to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM here in Toronto. Hi to everyone tuning in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. And how do, how do, to everyone pulling us in on one on the, uh, the Zoomer Radio app and the Conspiracy Show app. 
uh, those of you watching the live stream on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, and of course, those faithful assembled in the live YouTube chat. However, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Haunted and cursed objects this hour. Now, if you have something, maybe an armoire, an antique doll, uh, maybe some jewelry that you suspect may be cursed or haunted, we would love to hear from you, and we'll open the lines towards the bottom of the hour. Now, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who joins us uh, the second Sunday of every month, uh, was to be with us tonight. She's not feeling well. In fact, she just moved out to Seattle. I just found this out. She left uh, Connecticut and has uh, uh, moved out to Seattle. Uh, and when she found out she wasn't going to be able to do the, sh- the show tonight, she put me in touch with my guest this hour. He's a fellow paranormal investigator, also located in Seattle. Ross Allison is the founder of EGHOST, A-G-H-O-S-T, an acronym standing for Advanced Ghost Hunters of Seattle-Tacoma. And he now runs Agost Investigations, with well over 20 years of investigating the paranormal and over 10 years running a ghost hunting group. Ross travels internationally to investigate paranormal activity, collect ghost stories, research cemeteries, and teach others about the strange things going on all around us. He is the author of several books on the paranormal, including Spooked in Seattle, Spooked Again in Seattle, Haunted Washington, The Ghost Hunter's Journal, Ghostology 101, Psychology for the Ghost Hunter, Ghosts on Campus, and Haunted Ships and Lighthouses. Ross Allison, thanks for stepping in for Rosemary Ellen Guiley last minute. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show. My pleasure. You have a death museum, I understand. Tell me about that I first do. of all. I'm standing right in the middle of it right now. Uh, we are located in the heart of Seattle in Pioneer Square, which is the oldest part. And we actually have a huge collection of morning attire, uh, for morning dresses, uh, vintage coffins, uh, we got uh, um, some skulls, uh, we have embalming equipment, we also have uh, a real human skeleton, which is interesting, and of course we have a haunted collection of dolls and toys and stuff like that. And, and how do these haunted uh, items come to you? Do people just, they're sort of fed up with them and they hand them over to you? Pretty much, pretty much. You get a lot of people that have obtained certain objects that uh, they just didn't want in their house anymore. They felt creeped out by it. It was passed down from probably their grandmother. Or they may have thought, oh, this is an interesting piece when they purchased it at an antique store. And then, of course, they get it home and strange things happen. It's like, well, I don't want this anymore. So they're more than happy to donate it to our museum. And... Uh, aren't you affected by by these these objects yourself? I mean, uh, d- d- do you have any concern about being in close proximity to all of this uh, this energy? You know, I, I thought in the beginning it would be definitely interesting having a lot of haunted objects, but I already chose a location that was already you know haunted itself. So I think by bringing all these objects together and the attention that they get by you know 
hundreds of people coming down here and looking at them, I think a lot of them are at peace. They enjoy the attention. So for me, it hasn't been a lot of crazy stuff like I thought it would be. It's actually been very peaceful, and I've enjoyed having these collections. And dolls, I'm guessing, are, are, are would they be the most common object that tends to be haunted? Yes. And in fact, it's kind of interesting because they, they do believe that a doll would be a perfect vessel for a spirit because it already resembles the human body. So when you have this empty shell of a toy that's just sitting around not doing anything, that a lot of people feel that they, they do draw on a lot of the spirits. But then when it comes to toys, especially dolls, you know, children put a lot of energy into them, you know, especially these little girls that, you know, take care of it as if it's their own baby and they they become obsessed with a lot of these toys and that energy alone can transfer into a toy now is it always the case that the spirit that is inhabiting the toy or the doll is the child that owned the doll or do do spirits in general look to inhabit toys and dolls well, I think it varies on the location or the situation, I should say. Um, but I think in a lot of cases, when it comes to dolls themselves, um, it usually is attachment from a child. Or in some cases, it could be the, the child spirit itself that actually has transferred into the toy. Uh, here's a, a great story if you'd like to hear it. Yes, please. Um, there was a, here's a story called um, that I did research with uh, David Weatherly in our book Haunted Toys, and this is actually about a stuffed lamb. And this little girl, she just loved this toy lamb. She carried it with her everywhere. And the unfortunate event was uh, she was actually crossing the road while she was holding this lamb, and she was struck by a car. And of course, her and the lamb separate, and um, she died from her injuries. And her mother actually went to go back to the scene of the accident because she couldn't find the lamb. And she wanted her daughter to be buried with this lamb. But unfortunately, they couldn't find it. So so they went ahead with the funeral. Uh, She was buried. And uh, when the mother and father had returned after the funeral to their home, they were surprised to see that there was her toy lamb sitting on the front porch. Oh, dear. So immediately, yeah, the mother brings it into her home, and, you know, she puts it on her daughter's bed. And after a few days, things started to get really interesting. She'd find that this toy lamb would actually be sitting in front of the TV on Saturday mornings, just like her little daughter would be, you know, to watch the cartoons. Um, some days she'd even find that the, the, doll, the little lamb would be sitting at the table, you know, getting ready for dinner like she always used to do. Uh-huh. And after all these experiences... Um, her mother was very curious as to what was going on, so she actually contacted a local ghost hunter. And this ghost hunter decided, you know, to try to do some EVP sessions. And sure enough, you know, uh, through these EVP sessions, they would hear the little girl. And they would hear her giggling, uh, and, you know, they'd hear her whisper to her mother. Well, one night, they decided to do another EVP session. And after they stopped the session the um, ghost hunter went to pick up the little toy lamb and he was surprised because it felt damp to him. But he went ahead and put it back on the little girl's bed 
And they finished the session and they went, you know, their separate ways. And when he got home, he started listening to the recordings. And to his surprise, he just got the little girl crying and sobbing really, really hard in this recording. Well, that night, the mother, she was very uncomfortable feeling. And so she actually decided to, you know, go into her daughter's room. And she, you know, she just wanted to say goodnight and she just couldn't leave the room. So she laid on the bed. And as she looked up, she saw her daughter standing in her doorway. Mm. And as soon as she saw her daughter, she just vanished. And that was the last time she ever saw her. And that was the last time that that lamb even moved around. They think the reason why she was crying, because she wanted to say goodbye to her mother. Right. Right. And that's why the lamb was damp from her tears. Exactly. That's heartbreaking. Uh, any, any time, you know, what the, the, one of the most difficult things for me to hear are the, the EVPs of children's voices. Um, oh, yeah. how many dolls do you have in your collection? Oh God, I don't think I've even counted. I would probably have to say I have a good, maybe 60, 70 dolls here. 60 or 70. Yeah. And, and all, and all reportedly haunted. All of them have had some pretty interesting stories. I can't say that every single one of them is haunted. I haven't had a personal experience with every one of them. But I would say that, yeah, there's a lot of them here that have had some interesting encounters with the people that previously owned them. Um, some of them are just the ones that they just don't want them in their home. Everybody, when they look at this doll, they're just creeped out. But yeah, have, you had a per- a per- have you witnessed something going on with one of these dolls? Oh, yes. In fact, uh, one of our our more famous doll is Mr. Creepy. Now, he is actually a ventriloquist doll. He was created in the 1960s by a retired ventriloquist artist that actually was pretty big here in the vaudeville during the vaudeville days in the Northwest. Well, in his retirement years, he would actually make these dolls and perform from time to time. Well, he actually made this doll. And he actually made a female counterpart as well. The interesting thing was he actually made this doll in his likeness and the female counterpart in his wife's likeness. Mm. What makes these dolls more interesting is they use their real hair on these dolls. Now, unfortunately, the couple passed away in an accident. And after their passing, the dolls were sold as a pair at the estate sale. Well, This uh, woman who actually deals with antiques, she purchased the dolls, and she put them on display on a shelf behind her register. Now, they sat there for a good long time, no issues whatsoever, but unfortunately, they sold her building. So this means she has to pack up and move to another location. So she packs up the dolls separately, and she puts them into storage. Well, when she gets a new location, she goes back to the storage unit, pulling pieces to stock her store. And she finds the gentleman, but she can't find the female counterpart. But she goes ahead and puts him on display in a glass case behind the register. Now, right away, she starts having these weird sensations. Like there is somebody standing behind her, breathing down the back of her neck. She always feels like she's being watched. She said someday she'd come in and find that his head would be turned in another direction. (laughs) Some days, uh, his eyes would be looking in another direction. Now, what's really weird about this is his eyes are actually spring-loaded. 
So that right. means it's a trigger that controls his eyes. Once you let go of the trigger, it, the eyes spring right back to the center. So they cannot stay left or right unless you're holding on to the trigger. Right. But right. she would experience that. She said, go right in there, and he'd be looking completely to the left. Now, I have to admit, I've experienced that myself. And he's in a glass case, so no one can actually get in and fool around with him. And when I've come in and found that his eyes would be looking left or right, my curiosity gets the best of me. So I want to see what's going on. So I try to slowly, you know, look to see what's happening behind him. And as soon as I cause any vibration to that glass case, his eyes spring right back to the center. It's startling. Wow. Well, was, yeah. was the female ever found? The female counterpart? I'm getting there. <laughs> I'm getting there. Okay, sorry. Okay. <laughs> it gets more interesting. <laughs> so what happens is, you know, of course, she keeps having these weird experiences with him, you know, his head moving left or right. Some days the glass case would be open. And it was freaking her out so much that she didn't want to deal with him on a daily basis. So she moved him to the back of the store on a bottom shelf. She didn't have to see him every day. So I go into a lot of these antique stores looking for pieces for my death museum. And I always ask, you know, do you have anything that's odd? And of course, I, I love to hear their stories. And immediately, she introduces me to Mr. Creepy. And she tells me a story. And I'm like, oh, my God, I love this guy. I would love to give him a home here at Spook in Seattle. So she was so happy to get rid of him that she sold me him for $1. Oh, my so gosh. I bring him here. Yep. I put him in what we had. We had this beautiful uh, antique glass case. And uh, I had put him in this case. And it's one of those heavy cases that usually takes about two people to pull away from the wall uh, to get access to the doors behind it, unlock the doors, you know, and then, of course, lock them, push it back up against the wall. So I had him on display in this antique case. And uh, I was here alone one day. And I have heard the strange thud against glass. Now, immediately, I thought something happened in the gift shop. So I come out, and I'm looking around the gift shop, and I can't find anything disturbed. So I'm like, what caused that noise? So I come around these big tables that we have, and I'm now facing that glass case with the dolls. And I notice right away that his head is now turned and leaning up against the glass. Oh, man. So I immediately pull out my cell phone. I take a picture. You know, just for this really did happen. And... Interesting enough, when I examine the photo, you can actually see something very odd, and that is his reflection. If you ever look up a picture of Mr. Creepy, you know, and there's lots of pictures of him online, um, you can see that this guy has got these very cartoonish features, you know, very round face, round eyes, round rosy cheeks. But in this reflection, he's got a more elongated face, more thin-looking, very, very droopy eyes more lifelike. And I think that is the man that actually haunts us all. And people ask me why. And I think he is looking for that female counterpart. They hadn't been separated since the day they were created. And so I have been on a quest to try and find her. So it's a situation, Mr. Creepy seeking Mrs. Creepy. Wow. She was never located. Never located. Amazing. Um, what other objects uh, are, are commonly uh, haunted? I mentioned uh, jewelry. I mentioned, yeah. you know, antique furnitures like armoires. What are, what are other common objects that, are, that tend to be haunted? 
Well, we find that most haunted objects tend to be a very personal object. Jewelry is very personal. You know, it's something you wear every day, a wedding ring. You know, something that seems to be very personal to somebody can easily hold on to that energy. Um, we've got a uh, skeletal hand here where a gentleman was killed in a mining explosion, and all they retrieved was his hand, and it was identified by his wedding ring. And the family, you know, held on to this hand, hoping that more pieces would be retrieved, you know, of his body so they could give him a proper burial. And no other pieces were found. And so this family held on to that hand for such a long time that they ended up having it mounted. And it's almost like, you know, a memento of this, this young man. And they believe that he is attached to that hand. You know, hmm. you know, pictures could be haunted as well. Um, all kinds of interesting things. A wedding dress, you know, there's a story of a haunted wedding dress where it was passed down from generation to generation. And any woman that wore that dress uh, ended up having a failed ma- marriage within a year. You know, now, all kinds. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, I was just going to say, um, when someone ha- when someone goes antiquing, let's say, or they go to a flea market, I was I went for a walk today, and there was like this is this the time of year for garage sales and lawn sales, and there were about a half a dozen on my my route, and uh, I'm always curious to see you know what what wares people have, but I'm also you know I've done enough of these shows and uh, you know with Rosemary and now with yourself, I'm I'm a little weary or wary rather a little wary of just bringing something home. Uh, so, I mean, how do you, how do you make sure you don't, you don't bring a hitchhiker home with you, if you know what I mean? Well, you know, if somebody may be gifted in being, you know, maybe psychic or sensitive, I think they have the ability to pick up on something that right away. But I also, you know, tell people to listen to your inside feelings, your gut feelings. If you get that, you know, immediately creepy feeling over something, then that's probably that fight or flight feeling that, you know, we're, that's embedded in us. So I think that's always a good sign in the very beginning. And are there, are there symptoms? I mean, aside from seeing, let's say, let's say you bring a doll home and let's assume you're not seeing the eyes move back and forth or that you don't, you're not seeing the doll moving. Uh, but are there other signs? that you might have some sort of a spirit attachment in the house? I mean, what, what sort of do, do people report uh, feeling ill or what other, what other ways can we tell? Well, and, that, and that's one of the things that we always ask when we are, get called in to do an investigation is, did you bring something recently into your home, especially for people that do like to collect antiques? And you will find in some situations where, yeah, nightmares could start, People will have trouble sleeping at night. You could actually hear strange noises, uh, most commonly even talking or um, voices. You know, if it's children, you might hear giggling or crying. Um, things being moved around is another common phenomena that you'll actually experience. I've had a situation where, you know, somebody had brought a doll into their home and they never seen anything happen with the doll, but they would actually hear you know, a child, you know, calling out mama, and they would actually hear, you know, the pitter-patter of feet going up and down the halls, doors opening and closing. So, yeah, that's one of the things you want to look for is, you know, just the other strange phenomena that can occur once you bring this object into your home. 
All right, Ross, stay put. We'll come back on the other side and continue to delve into haunted and cursed objects. And we'll also open up the phone lines. If you believe you may have a haunted object or a cursed object, we'd love to hear from you. 416-360-0740 in the greater Toronto area and toll free from just about anywhere. 1-866-740-4740. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Ross Allison is with us. He is the founder of AGHOST, A-G-H-O-S-T, Advanced Ghost Hunters of Seattle, Tacoma. And uh, he has 20 years, over 20 years of investigating the paranormal, over 10 years running a ghost hunting group. He travels internationally to investigate paranormal activity. Some of his books uh, include Spooked in Seattle, Haunted Washington, The Ghost Hunter's Journal, Ghostology 101, Psychology for the Ghost Hunter, Ghosts on Campus, and Haunted Ships and Lighthouses. And uh, he is joining us live from Seattle and his uh, museum, uh, the Dead Museum, uh, which includes a collection of somewhere around 60 or 70 dolls, most of which are haunted. Uh, what do you do uh, if you have a haunted object? You want to keep the object, but you don't want to keep the ghost. I mean, how do you, uh, how do you cleanse, I guess, uh, that object? Well, I, I've always been one that's... Uh kind of been skeptical when it comes to cleansings. I think if you are dealing with something intelligent, you're dealing with something that has free will. So I think for some people, it can be an extreme challenge. Um, for some people, they like to, you know, if you're trying to get rid of the spirit, you may have to get rid of the object itself. There's too much of an attachment. Um, some people will suggest maybe a blessing on the object itself. Uh, I think it just depends on your own faith. Um, uh, to be honest with you, I think that's probably the best routes you're going to be able to do. Right. Now, is there a difference between a haunted object and a cursed object? Let's say, for example, the Hope Diamond. And I think, you know, many of us are familiar with this, uh, this particular piece of uh, jewelry that, that uh, really brought tragedy to many of its owners. Right. Uh, is it likely that that object was simply haunted, or is there something? Is there is a curse something entirely different? A curse is something uh, completely different. You know, haunting is obviously something uh, of a human being, you know, a spirit of the human being attached to an object, or some sort of entity attached to an object. When you're talking about a curse, you're dealing with you know something that's going to bring you bad luck. Um, in fact, uh, what I'm trying to think of a great curse story that I have is um, there's a ship called uh, the Sea King, and this goes back to the 1800s, uh, and it was actually in San Francisco when the great San Francisco earthquake hit. So it survived the earthquake because it was in the water, 
But um, one of the things that these ships do uh, before they head back out to sea is they have to fill their ballast. And usually they fill their ballast with rocks, very heavy material. Um, and so since San Francisco actually was full of all this rubble now, so what they did is they filled the ship with all this rubble from the San Francisco earthquake. Well, the interesting thing was, is as the ship was making its way back to Seattle, the crew that had been on the ship for, gosh, you know, probably decades, they were just uh, upset. They just said that the, there was just something off about the ship the whole time. They kept hearing these strange moans. Um, they kept hearing voices. And so when they finally got to Seattle and they started to, you know, dump out everything that was in the ballast, to their surprise, they found that they had actually been carrying the remains of people that were killed in the San Francisco earthquake. Wow. These bodies were just twisted amongst all the, the rubble. And since they had that happen, these men who were already superstitious, you know, being at sea, right. believed that this ship was cursed. And it's just that, that bad juju that people, you know, want to blame on these objects. And it's one of those things that just keeps bringing you bad luck. Do you have an object in your museum that you believe is cursed? I do. I actually have a, uh, I have a few things, but one of my favorite stories I do like to tell is what we call our demon doll. And this is a doll that was actually, uh, I came across on a Craigslist ad. And the story was that this doll uh, was believed to be, um, it belonged to their great aunt. And when she was nine years old, uh, they believed that she was possessed. So the local priest claimed to have exorcised the demon from the little girl and transferred it into her doll. Then he put his rosary on the doll, preventing that demon from escaping. So for decades and decades, this doll has been passed on from generation to generation. And their sole purpose is to protect this doll and make sure that that rosary does not come off the doll because they believe that whatever's inside this doll is out to destroy their family. They believe that it is cursed because ever since they had, uh, before this ha had happened, they had nothing but bad luck in their family. But once they believe that they trapped whatever it is in this doll, things got better for them. Well, now it's the younger generation's turn to take care of this doll. They didn't want it. So they posted an ad on Craigslist hoping somebody would take this doll off their hands. They didn't want any money. In fact, they were willing to pay fees if they had to ship it. And they don't even want fame. I'm not even allowed to tell you the family's name. They just wanted to make sure that whoever was going to take this doll off their hands would take care of the doll. So I was able to prove to them that this doll is going to be behind glass. No one's going to be messing with it. So they gave me the doll. So it is now and my sole responsibility to make sure that rosary does not come off the doll. And it's right there. Are you looking at it right now as we speak? I, I am looking at it right now. <laughs> and and are you? I mean, are you at all superstitious? Do you? Are you religious? Do you? I mean, would you? Which if someone offered you five thousand dollars to take the the um, the rosary off of that doll, would you do it? No, I, I would say. I'm respectful to whatever is out there. 
And I would not want to put anybody in harm, whether, you know, it's good or bad. I just would not want to take that chance. $25,000. (laughs) (laughs) Shall we do a live show on this? (laughs) (laughs) But honestly, no, I I, I made them a promise and I would respect that promise. And so, I mean, I wish you a long and healthy life, but what happens when you're, I don't know, let's say ready to retire and you need, you want to give these objects away. I mean, how, what then? Well, I think there's enough people out there that are trained, you know, to make sure that they treat these objects with respect, that hopefully they would go on to a good home and uh, people would respect these objects and take good care of them. All right, let's grab a call. Uh, Sorry, what was that, Ross? Finish up. I was going to say, I think in a lot of cases with a lot of these toys and objects, they're just misunderstood. Most people, you know, default to fear whenever they experience anything odd. And I, and I think that's our biggest problem in the society you know, when it comes to ghosts is, you know, we want to fear it because we're taught to fear it. And I think in most cases, it's, it's pretty tame. Uh, let's grab a call. Chris is here in Toronto. Chris, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good morning. Hey there. Um, so I've had an item in my house that I had a weird issue with. So... I collect a lot of antiques, and I got this uh, still from the Prohibition era, from when alcohol was banned. And ever since I brought the thing home, I would experience feelings of me and my girlfriend would be sleeping. We'd experience sleep paralysis at night. We'd experience tightness. I'd feel as if something was choking me. I'd hear weird noises in my room, like dings and knock, like tapping noises. And what else happened in my house? Mm-hmm. And my girlfriend and Chris- would have constant sleep paralysis every night. She'd wake up crying. It would never go away. It was terrifying until we removed the object and these things just stopped happening. Oh, yeah. That was very Where did you have the still? Right there. Where did you have the still? I was talking about. You know, um, like you it a shelf in my room where I would have items on display and it would be right above my bed. Wow. Yes. What, what did you, did you do with the still? With it? Um, well, what I did was actually, it's kind of a weird story. I took a uh, box in the Bible, actually, and I buried it and wrapped the box up in duct tape. And that, and that ended it for you, huh? It just ended it for me. After that night, I never experienced sleep paralysis. I never experienced weird noise in my closet. My girlfriend would never wake up extremely paranoid. Life just went uh-huh. back to normal. I'm glad you were able to solve the situation. Yeah. That Chris, a, thanks for the call. Great story. Great anyway, story. Yep. Have a great night, eh? Take care. Bye. You too. Thank you. There you go. A still from the, the uh, Prohibition era. Uh, oh, yeah. What about um, uh, Civil War memorabilia, these sorts of things? I mean, do you find that uh, spirits tend to attach themselves, you know, particularly if there's been a violent end. Is that important that if there's a violent end, a violent death, there's more likely to be a haunting? Well, there's a good chance, definitely. I don't want to say that it happens every time. You know, some spirits can move on, but there are, there's a big chance that uh, a lot of these objects can carry that, especially when you're dealing with such a a tragic event in their lives. You know, the Civil War was such a hard thing for the country. 
you know, father against your know, son. And, you, and you'd have to deal with this fact that you never even knew if your loved ones were out there fighting. That's one of the things that I've learned, you know, with this death museum, that's how much the Civil War has affected, you know, our society. So, yeah. All right, I, uh, you know, Ross, we'll take a quick time out. We'll come back and uh, we'll, we'll uh, continue to tour the uh, death museum. Ross Allison, paranormal investigator from Seattle, haunted and cursed objects. Here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Ross Allison is with us from Spooked in Seattle, and they are celebrating their 15th anniversary this year, and he's... Uh, on the line from the uh, Death Museum in uh, Seattle. How does Seattle rank among uh, haunted locations across the United States, Ross? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because, you know, we're the youngest city, you know, in the country, uh, being just over 150 years old. So it's a lot different coming from the East Coast over there. But uh, surprisingly, we have our fair share of ghosts as well. You know, I've been to some of the most haunted places all over the world, and sometimes you don't have the experiences. But I think, you know, Seattle does uh, fare in its uh, hauntings. You know, we've had our share of tragedies as well, you know, dealing with the Native American wars. We've had, you know, um, the speakeasies that led, led into, you know, prostitution and opium dens. So there was a lot of illegal stuff going on as well. So I, I think, you know, we're, we're pretty good. I think we can, you know, duke it out really well with uh, someone on the East Coast and say, yeah, our ghosts are pretty active, too. Uh, what about your, your underground, uh, uh, the, the underground portion of Seattle? Is, is that more haunted than above-ground locations? Oh, yeah. Uh, Seattle's history when it comes to the underground, you have to understand that uh, Seattle had suffered a great Seattle fire, June 6, 1889. And this wipes out 33 blocks in 12 hours. Now, no one died in the fire, but it was a big movement for the city because it allowed the city to rebuild itself. Because prior to the fire, the city was suffering from a lot of problems. And their main problem was the fact that they were built at sea level, a lot closer to the water. So extreme high tides were known to come in and flood, you know, the, the main street and some of the businesses every so often. So now they have this opportunity to rebuild. Oh, and I should point out, too, one of our biggest problems were, was the plumbing. Yeah, they had a strict mm-hmm. rule that you weren't allowed to flush your crapper at high tide. Because <laughs> if you had, you would actually cause a huge geyser of sewage and salt water to shoot out of these crappers. Wow. Yeah. Not a pretty sight or pretty smell for Seattle. Now, what happens is Seattle has this opportunity to rebuild. So they want to tear down all the hills and cliffs that surround us and use the dirt to raise our land and get us above the sea level. Well, it's a great idea. Other uh, cities have done this, and they've been very successful. But uh, the city, uh, the building owners, um, they didn't want to wait, you know, to have to rebuild because they stated that it was going to take them, you know, eight to ten years before they would actually complete this project. 
And, and no one who has a business here in Seattle wants to wait that long. So they just go ahead and start rebuilding their businesses the day after the fire. And the wow. business owners are like, wait, wait, stop, you guys. We're not going to fix our problems. We're going to have the exact same problem that we had before. Well, since the city is only responsible for the city streets, they decide, fine, what we're going to do is we're just going to raise our streets around you. So what they did is they build walls around each and every block. Then they would actually tear hills and cliffs and use all that dirt to go in between those walls. So now you have your street a good, you know, eight feet above the sidewalk. Well, (laughs) that's not very safe either. In fact, I believe uh, 15 men died just stepping off the street onto the sidewalk. Wow. So once they put in the, the, the sidewalks to ma- uh, match up to the second level now of the building, this created this, I, I don't want to say tunnel system, but there was this tunnel that went around the block. It's like an extended basement now for the business. Sure. But these underground sections weren't documented very well either. And so it was so easy for any, you know, shady business to, you know, operate a speakeasy down there. Uh, prostitution was really big in these underground sections. And then, of course, you know, drugs and all kinds of interesting things went on in these, you know, secret little, you know, tunnels around the block. So yeah, so you definitely have some your haunting. So your haunted ghost tours, uh, you take people down to the underground portion. Have you ever been scared, frightened down there? You know, I'll be honest with you. There have been times when you you walk into the underground in the dark and you just want to be lying to your destination. You don't want to look back. But yeah, you know, in the beginning, I I will admit it it was definitely creepy when you know and you've captured evidence supporting the fact that there is something here. If you feel like you're being watched, you're being watched. So, yeah, it, it definitely has that creepy factor. But now, you know, today I've been in the, the underground so much, it's, you know, it doesn't faze me as much. What kind of evidence have you, have you gathered down there or anywhere uh, during your investigations? What is the most compelling piece of evidence that you have of, of ghosts? Oh. Okay. So... There is um, a section that was uh, referred to as the bank vault Um, because the problem was that uh, there was so much illegal stuff going on. Seattle didn't have very much law. So what was happening is when these miners came into Seattle with gold in their pockets, people were doing whatever they could to get a hold of gold. And the city realizes this, so they created these, you know, underground vaults so that the men could get their gold into a safe place as soon as possible. And these vaults would be open later throughout the evening as well. So you didn't have to always be here within, you know, business hours. Well, of course, horrible things are happening in the underground. You know, guys are hiding in darkened corners, you know, waiting for somebody to walk by, grab you, stab you, take your gold and run. Um, you know, anything they could to get a hold of the gold. So lots of men had died in these underground portions. Well, near the vault area, we were doing an EVP session. And we'd ask, of course, the most common question that you'd ask during an EVP session, what is your name? And the response that we captured on a recording is Edward. Mm-hmm. Now, that was pretty cool. It was very clear. It was what we'd call a Class A EVP. Right. Well, then, years go by, 
And I, I get in touch with this other ghost hunting group that had the opportunity to investigate, investigate the underground. And we get to talking, and we found out that when they were down in the vault area, too, doing their EVP session, of course, they asked the same question, what is your name? And the response that they captured was Eddie. So mm-hmm. here are two different groups doing two separate investigations. We hadn't communicated with each other. We hadn't shared our evidence beforehand. But yet we walk away with a very similar EVP. Corroborating evidence. Edward, and they got Eddie. Okay, Ross, we're going to take a quick timeout. We'll come back. We'll take a call. And we'll continue to delve into Haunted Seattle haunted and cursed objects the conspiracy show continues right after this the world is being pulled over your eyes this is the conspiracy show with richard sarrett from zoomer radio to reach richard call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740 Welcome back. Ross Allison stays with us, a Seattle-based paranormal investigator, the author of a number of books on the subject, Spooked in Seattle, The Ghost Hunter's Journal, Ghostology 101, Psychology for the Ghost, Haunted Ships and Lighthouses. Let's grab a quick call. Billy is in uh, Toronto. Billy, good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good morning. Do you have any experience with famous rock or any type of musicians more specifically because you're talking more specifically about Seattle Seattle Kurt Cobain uh, Kurt Cobain's bench is uh, one of the most uh, notorious haunted locations here in the area ah. and they they claim the story is that um, before you know whatever happened some people believe he was murdered some people believe it was suicide um, but uh, before that tragic event took place, that they found that he had spent uh, quite a few hours on that bench. Hmm. And since his death, many people have claimed to see him sitting on that bench or feeling that he is with, you know, with them you know, when his fans come to visit. Yeah. Is that bench marked? With a it is. Um, I'm not sure. It's been a long time since I've been out there. Because I'm surprised I um, saw it. Yeah, well, no, it actually, in the very beginning, um, people used to uh, tag it, you know, with their, you know, name and everything and leave flowers and, you know, and leave their condolences uh, at this bench. And uh, they've had to replace it quite a few times uh, because of this. Or maybe it's just the location. Um, it could be the location, because too. Said you know, it is just there? outside of his house. When you're sitting on the bench, you can actually see his house. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Is that part of your ghost tour? It is not. Unfortunately, uh, Kurt Cobain's house is uh, a little further out there. It's probably a good uh, 15 minutes from uh, the downtown Seattle area. Ah, all right. People may be interested in listening to my Rock and Roll Twilight Zone episode on uh, (laughs) Kurt Cobain, and we investigate whether or not he was murdered. Uh, So you might want to check that out, the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. Hey, Billy, great call. Thank you for that. Uh, what else? Take us uh, back down into your uh, your museum, uh, Ross. Uh, give us a little bit of a tour. What else do you what What are you looking at right now? What am I looking at right now? I'm looking at a Native American doll. This doll was actually made out of uh, real Native American hair and skin. Yeah, the story is uh, this is actually over on the East Coast. 
um, early 1800s, a Native American was involved in the murder of a family, and he was tried and hung. And then they actually uh, used his remains to create this doll. And this doll sat in the window of an apothecary as a warning to anybody else that might mess with anybody in their town. Wow. And uh, any strange uh, behavior that's attributed to that that doll? I can't say there has been. It was just another interesting piece that I felt would uh, belong here in a death museum. So I cannot say that he is haunted. I definitely would think it would be a prime vessel to be, but uh, I don't know of anything yet. And tell me about these these vintage coffins uh, that you have. I mean, obviously, these were not used. Uh, well, there's one that is. <laughs> oh, it was. All right. Tell me about that. Yeah. So uh, back in the day when you'd order your coffin from a catalog, unless you uh, if you didn't have a cabinet maker or a carpenter in your in your area, you would order these you know cabinets through cat- uh, these uh, coffins through catalogs. And apparently what had happened is when the coffin showed up, it was not the right one that they wanted. So they had placed the body of their loved one in this coffin for a short time until the correct one came. And then they switched them to that one. And this coffin sat in this funeral home for, you know, a long time. And they just finally decided to get rid of it. And I was able to obtain that coffin. And it does have a little bit of body seepage in it. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, be, uh, be honest, have you ever slept in one of those coffins, Ross? No. I'm too <laughs> claustrophobic. I don't think I could do it. <laughs> Not even with the lid open. Oh, uh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I like to spread out when I'm trying to sleep. When you go on a ghost investigation, uh, what, what, are the, what are the gadgets that you, uh, that you take with you? Oh, well, we're not called advanced for, for nothing. Um, we probably gather easily, I'd say, $30,000 worth of equipment. You know, from thir- thermal cameras, we have about five thermal cameras in our team. Um, we have, you know, high-end infrared cameras, uh, full-spectrum cameras. We even have a system that we call Spectre, which monitors a controlled environment. Um, we have, uh, got, uh, high end audio recorders, uh, you name it, you know, we'll use it because my biggest thing is there is no device that's going to tell you, yes, you have a ghost. Um, to know, to, to develop a tool like that, you have to know what a ghost is made of. So we have the best we can do as investigators is to use any type of devices that help us to read the environment and help us to understand if there's changes to the environment that we can't explain. So whether that be, you know, temperature, EMF, ion, uh, we use it all. And we just try to hopefully support the idea that there could be something odd happening in these environments. Spooked in Seattle. Uh, How do we get a hold of all of your books? Well, definitely go to Amazon is a great place to find uh, my author page and all of my books. Um, you can definitely look up everything that uh, me and David Weatherly have been working on together. We have a series coming out called Haunted, and that's uh, got a, quite a few coming out in the near future. Um, so, yeah, I would say Amazon's their best bet. Ross Allison, great pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me on the show. All right. I hope we can talk again. You bet. 
My thanks to Owen Wolf and Ryan White back next week with a brand new show. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Or at least up the stairs. Good night. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Tonight, in the first hour... We pay tribute to the late Stanton Friedman, the grandfather of ufology. Roswell investigator Don Schmidt will join us. He's standing by. Don really picked up uh, the mantle of, of Stanton, who was an early civilian investigator of the alleged UFO crash near Roswell, New Mexico. Uh, coming up in the second hour, haunted and cursed objects. Uh, now, Rosemary Ellen Guiley was to be with us, but Rosemary is not feeling well tonight. Uh, in fact, she just moved out to Seattle. Uh, and in her absence, paranormal investigator and author Ross Allison will join us. Ross is also from Seattle. And he may be uh, joining us live from his death museum. Uh, we're hoping that we can uh, get him on the YouTube live stream, uh, the video, and uh, he may have a few haunted objects to show us. For those of you checking us out on the YouTube live stream, the YouTube channel, incidentally, is Strange Planet. Uh, in the second half, uh, incidentally, of our two, we'll open up the phone lines for questions and comments. Perhaps you have an object you suspect is haunted or cursed, and we'd love to hear about it. Uh, Owen Wolf is my technical producer. Ryan White is my live stream producer. And again, we are live streaming tonight on YouTube. Check out the YouTube channel, Strange Planet. Don't forget to hit the, hit the red sub button. Stanton Friedman is responsible for bringing the Roswell UFO incident into mainstream conversation. A nuclear physicist by training. Stanton devoted his life to researching and investigating UFOs since the late 1960s. Now, he officially retired last year, but kept uh, doing uh, speaking engagements simply because he loved talking about UFOs. And he was returning to his home in Fredericton from a speaking en engagement in Columbus, Ohio, when he died suddenly at the Toronto Pearson Airport. On May 14th, Stan was 84 years old. This hour, 
we pay tribute to Stanton Friedman. Donald Schmidt is the former co-director of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies in Chicago, where he served as director of special investigations for 10 years. Prior to that time, Don was a special investigator for the late Dr. J. Allen Hynek and the art director for the International UFO Reporter. Don graduated from MATC with a degree in commercial art and graduated cum laude from Concordia University with a degree in liberal arts. He's currently taking graduate courses in criminal justice. He and Thomas Carey, his writing partner for nearly 20 years, have already outlined their next writing collaboration. He is the author of hundreds of articles about UFOs, as well as the co-author of five best-selling books, UFO Crash at Roswell, The Truth About the UFO Crash at Roswell, Witness to Roswell, uh, the Witness to Roswell Revised Edition, Inside the Real Area 51, The Secret History of Wright-Patterson. He's also the author of Roswell, The Chronological Pictorial. Don has led and organized the uh, has led and organized four official archaeological dig projects at the actual Roswell crash debris field. They were in, they were conducted in 1989, 2002, 2006, 2013. The second effort became the central theme of the highest rated show up to that time in the history of the Sci-Fi Channel. The Roswell crash startling new evidence, and I should point out. I mentioned his writing collaboration with Thomas Carey, his latest book now out with Thomas, and it's called UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson, Eyewitness Accounts from the Real Area 51. Don Schmidt, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. It's been a while. How are you? It has been, and so good to be back with you, Richard. How are you? Terrific. Thank you. Now, uh, just set us up, set the table uh, you know, after the Roswell crash in in 1947, there was a you know a kerfuffle and and uh, a big flap for a while. It died off quickly, and then it was really uh, lost to the world until late 1970s. And again, Stanton Friedman obviously played a huge role in reopening the Roswell case. Take us back to the late 70s. And, uh, and Stanton Friedman's meeting with Jesse Marcel. Yes. Well, Marcel was the head of intelligence at the 509th Bomb Group at the Roswell Army Airfield back in 1947. He was the, uh, the central officer who not only was uh, first sent out to investigate the, uh, the crash, but then would become the Patsy the Fall guy. He was ordered away from Roswell, up the chain of command, and then he participated in the balloon, the infamous balloon press conference, where he was ordered to pose with the substituted weather balloon with the radar reflector kite, the Rowland target device, as it was called at that time, and um, sworn to secrecy, told not to say another word to the press, until 30 years later, he was dying of emphysema and realizing that it wasn't coming out. It was one of the things that Marcel had been assured of time and time again. You know, just be a good soldier, Jess. It'll all come out in the next five years, ten years. You'll be vindicated. You'll be a hero. And um, you know, the rest will be history. Well, 30 years later, he realizes it's not coming out. And he breaks his oath. 
he goes public. And um, one of the people that was immediately tipped off to, you know, you know, Stan, who you should talk to is this retired lieutenant colonel who actually handled pieces of a flying saucer. And Marcel, you know, was uh, reluctant at first, but Stan, for his dogged determination and realizing that he potentially had a tiger by the tail, and Stan was like me in that we, we always have preferred nuts and bolts. Uh, the, the same with Dr. Heineck, and I could not be more fortunate in that I got to work with both Dr. Heineck and, and, and Stan Friedman. And both of them, they like to, as I would say, be able to go across the street and kick the tires, so to speak. And right. he, he realized that with Marcel that, um, my God, if he's telling the truth, we're talking potentially about the biggest story of the millennium. And the rest is history, because within the next two years, it would lead to the first book on Roswell, Roswell Incident, which was co-authored by Charles Berlitz and uh, William Moore. Stan did, uh, you know, the, the bulk of the research and the interviews of the witnesses for that book, and he unfortunately only received an acknowledgment, whereas he was the crux. He was the one that started this. And uh, as I've often said, that he championed as far as the Roswell incident in that there wasn't a witness, there wasn't a story, a rumor that he would turn a deaf ear to, that if it had anything to do with the possible breakthrough of what transpired back in 1947. Uh, Stan was, you know, Johnny on the spot, and I love that about him. I love the fact that uh, when we had that conversation in the fall of 1988, and I asked him, Stan, do you believe you've talked to all the witnesses? Do you feel you've taken the case as far as you, you possibly can? And he re responded, well, no, Don, absolutely not. You know, there's probably hundreds of witnesses still out there, and I could use some help. And I was a skeptic. I can't emphasize that enough, Richard. Uh, you know, we thought we'd make a single weekend jaunt down to New Mexico and, you know, wrap this up. That it was nothing more than a balloon or something just as uh, prosaic, just as conventional. But Stan was right. I mean, I... I, I I, I am proud to admit that I was wrong about Roswell, <laughs> and Stan was 100% right, that it indeed was the crash of a craft of unknown origin that was not manufactured on this planet. What was your aha moment? Was it in conversation with Stan? Did he introduce you to somebody that convinced you? The first 10 witnesses who actually handled the wreckage, one by one, the consistency, the the descriptions of this unusual, this strange, super-sophisticated material that defied conventional explanation. And one by one, we realized, my God, they're not describing anything conventional. It's hardly, you know, any semblance of a balloon or anything, you know, of that magnitude. And, and, and still, here we are now, it's, it's 30 years later, when you think about it, and we've just about, we're on the one foot yard line, so to speak, as far as witnesses go. World War II generation and Stan and, and myself, we often, in doing interviews, we would remind potential witnesses. We would often, you know, describe to the audiences that we're racing with the undertaker, that eventually they will win. 
but the very thought that because we have been totally committed and devoted to this for the past 30 years, and in Stan's case, 40 years before just passing, that we believe that, as we've been told many times, that we could take this in any court of law and win hands down. That just the uh, 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 preponderance of circumstantial eyewitness testimony from military high-ranking officers to media, press personnel, to all the civilians involved. And they're all reading from the same script, as you know, Richard. They're all describing, you know, that, you know, the same type of characteristics of the wreckage. And then when we get to the bodies, also, you know, the identical descriptions. So, as I said, they're either all reading from the same script, or they're recounting precisely what they witnessed back in 1947. Was Stanton initially a skeptic as well about Roswell? Did he ever confide in you about that? Well, well Stan was far from a skeptic. Um, even in, in his beginning uh, years, I, was, I think it was the one thing that attracted and drew him away from his work as a nuclear physicist and realizing that this was a much bigger story in that he as you would call it, the cosmic Watergate, and he was you know, quick to label it the, the cover-up that I, too, am now convinced and has, has been demonstrated time and time again with the whistleblowers, with the people, even to this day, that are coming forward. And we realize that the truth has been withheld, especially back since 1947. So I think Stan... As I would say, I came into it with a very healthy skepticism, yet, yet, yet Stan came into it as far as with both legs running, that he was, was quick to jump on the case, and he created a momentum that then we, we picked up on. And we realized that lest we get caught with our, our pants down, so to speak, that we needed to treat it as though it was genuine, as though it was potentially you know, this, earth, uh, this earth-shattering announcement, and that it's just a matter of, you know, reaching that crescendo where we would have that breakthrough. And as, as Stan and I would often discuss it, no matter who would win, we all win. You know, it's just a matter, uh, we want to be in the race. We want to be at the goal line when either one of us, you know, finally crosses that line. And uh, that's why, uh, and tonight I, w- I would announce as far as to all your audience that I am more committed than ever to finish what Stan Freeman started back in 1978. Uh, I was going to ask you about, uh, you sort of answered part of the question, but you know, you mentioned earlier the Roswell incident. That was really the first modern book that, that came out about, or the first book period about Roswell with Berlitz yeah. and Moore. And then there was yourself and Kevin Randall uh in 91 with ufo crash at roswell and we had uh stanton's book a year after yours crash at corona with a a berliner but was there was there a friendly competition amongst all of you to see you know who could find the next big witness who could uncover that next piece of the puzzle well to be quite honest it was quite uh (laughs) it was beyond competitive at times and it wasn't who was going to solve the case at, at times as much as we, were, we would deal with witnesses that 
either party we did not agree with, we did not accept. They were describing uh, another scenario, another timeline. Uh, they were as though they were distracting us, diverting us from uh, the main uh, pursuit of the case. And we had some, you know, you know, drawn out almost like professional wrestling, you know, no no holds barred type of arguments in public, and uh, as far as disputes, as far as and exchanges of correspondence and face to face, and uh, the, but the the wonderful thing was that at the end of the day we could always shake hands and we had a respect for one another. We respected each other's research. We respected as far, the, the point being that we had to at least uh, retain not only a united front, but, and, and I will give Stan, again, all the credit for the fact that as much and at times that we disagreed on certain aspects of Roswell, that whenever we would be doing a program together, we would do a, be, you know, interviewed for a documentary uh, piece together, that we had a standing professional agreement that we would only discuss that which we agreed on, that it was never a case publicly, well, you disagree with this, or I say this, you know, even though you don't believe in it, and that's where the competition always took a back seat, that when it came to professionalism, professional courtesy, we always presented a united front in public. And I tip my hat to my late good friend, Stanton Friedman, because he always honored that agreement, and I know I always did as well. Uh, what did Stanton make of the testimony of the, the, uh, the, the undertaker in Roswell, who, uh, Glenn Dennis, who talked Glenn about... Dennis. The uh, you know the tiny sure. coffins. He was called from the airfield. How many tiny coffins do you have, etc.? Did he did yeah. he believe that he was credible? Yes, he did. Right right up to the end. And uh, and Glenn Dennis, we spent a, a good amount of time not only trying to verify and and uh, find out as far as the true of uh, you know story, the history of the nurse he described. Uh, we pretty much uh, are convinced that the phone calls to the Ballard Funeral Home did indeed take place. They, uh, we discovered multiple witnesses, a former attorney, a former chief of police, a former, a former ambulance driver, who all described to us that within days after the incident that Glenn was confiding to them about the bizarre phone calls from the base hospital regarding the uh, availability of these child-sized caskets. And then we spoke to the son of the very truck driver who was on contract with the funeral home, who actually made the unscheduled drive all the way from Roswell to Amarillo, Texas, where they would acquire their regular uh, caskets, and that he indeed picked up a number of child-sized caskets. And the son described to us when they returned back to Roswell that much of the city had been cordoned off, that they had to circle to the west coming in from the east and then wind their way into town just attempting to get to the funeral home. His father would drop him off and wouldn't return to the next morning. And then he told him, son, it's true. It was all true what, you know, what uh, the, the, the funeral home required the caskets for. 
Now, now Stan was the first one. Now, we had a bit of a race as to who was going to talk to the mortician, mm-hmm. Glenn Dennis, first. And Stan did get to him uh, just a matter of days before we did. And, and but from then on, it was still a mutual cooperation, and we worked together on establishing Glenn Dennis's bona fides, so to speak. And uh, there was never any dispute, and uh, you know this this competition of well, I spoke to him first, or well, but we got more information <laughs> on him later, you know that type of thing. No, no, no. We um, again, uh, our disputes at times were in regards to witnesses that turned out either to be legitimate or uh, discredited after the fact. And there were times that I honestly had to say to Stan, you were right, you were absolutely right, and I apologize, you were right on that one. The other uh, amazing uh, witness testimony came from the New Mexico Lieutenant Governor, Joseph Montoya. I first heard this story from you uh, down in uh, the UFO Congress, you told it to me from one of my TV episodes. Uh, I remember that. Yes. Just we, uh, uh, walk us through. Outside. Yes. Yes. Walk us through Montoya's testimony. This is the lieutenant governor, basically second in charge in the state next to the governor uh, who happened to be at the airfield that day. But uh, talk, just tell the listeners who he was, what he saw. And then then we can talk about what Stanton thought of his testimony. Well, you are correct in that he was in Roswell at the time. That has been confirmed. He was there for the dedication of a new aircraft. And um, to us, it made, uh, it, it made sense in that as they were attempting to come up with answers, and there was nothing in the Army field manual as far as how to deal with the recovery, the retrieval of a crash saucer, and, and certainly the remains, the bodies, the crew, that were part of that particular crash. And Matoya, the lieutenant governor, just happening to be there, we've also confirmed that he, he was staying at the Nixon Hotel in downtown Roswell. And we even interviewed his former uh, 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 driver by the name of Red Worley, who picked him up later after two of um, Montoya's friends, close friends, they were two brothers by the name of Pete and Ruben Anaya. John, I've got to, pardon my interruption, I've got to jump in here. We're going to take a quick time out. We'll come back, continue to talk about Lieutenant Governor Joseph Montoya, what he saw at Roswell, and our special tribute to the late Stanton Friedman, Don Schmidt, my guest, right here on The Conspiracy Show. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Well, let's face it, there have been literally thousands of pilot sightings. The problem is pilots don't want to stick their necks out because they're afraid of losing their job. And so there is an organization to which they can report their sighting without having their name be attached to it. Somebody has the rules, if you will, the entry books. And... uh Dr. Richard Haynes is the primary scientist of this group. He worked for NASA, was a scientist for NASA for many years, and he has written even written some books about uh, pilot sightings, say, in, um, in Southeast Asia 
and in other places. Oh, and I'm not hearing the clip. And, you know, uh, I fly a lot. I sure hope that the guy who's running that airplane knows what's going on around him and keeps his eyes open and avoids any problems with uh, an unplanned interaction with another vehicle. Uh, So I tend to trust pilots, especially when you get a consistency of reports, the behavior as well as the appearance. Uh, you know, we don't have, so far as we know, airplanes that can start, stop, move straight up, straight down, silently, make right angle turns without slowing down first and then speeding up after they make the turn. Obviously, such ca- characteristics would be great for military systems. Uh, if we had them, we'd use them. Uh, and there have been a few wars in which we have used airplanes. Uh, and so, uh, I, I think I like pilot sightings. I'm not saying pilots are infallible. Uh, nobody's infallible. But, you know, the question isn't, are all UFO sightings alien spacecraft? The question is, are any? And our answer is yes, very definitely. They're manufactured vehicles that haven't been made on Earth. That means they come from someplace else. Very straightforward. All right, and we are back with Don Schmidt. That was a clip from the man himself, the late Stanton Friedman, who passed away May 14th at the age of 84, and coming back, of course, from a UFO event. How fitting for Stanton, who dedicated his uh, his life, certainly the last uh, 45, 50 years of his life, to investigating not only Roswell, but uh, UFOs, and the existence of ETs in general. Don Schmidt, my guest. And uh, Don, before the break, uh, we were uh, discussing Lieutenant Governor Joseph Montoya, uh, who was at the Roswell Army uh, Airfield on that day. And um, he was there to dedicate a new aircraft. Uh, just uh, just finish up that story, and then we'll talk about what Stanton thought of, um, of, of Montoya's testimony. Well, the other interesting thing about, uh, now here it is, the 4th of July weekend, and we could find all types of press accounts where all the state dignitaries were and participating with uh, holiday uh, activities, parades, and fireworks displays and everything. There's absolutely nothing. We have not in 30 years been able to find a single account describing the whereabouts of the lieutenant governor of that holiday weekend here in the States. And yet we have been able to confirm he was in Roswell. That probably, you know, therein lies the, the, the problem in establishing his whereabouts. But he was taken to building P3. It was a, a building, it was a hangar called uh, 84. And it's where the wreckage and the bodies transited through. And he was actually shown the bodies. And one of them was alive. He described the movement of the one. And that's when he called up one of the uh, young people, uh, young uh, gentlemen that he had known for years. They were part as far as of his uh, a campaign, as far as in getting elected, as far as lieutenant governor. And then thereafter, when he became senator of New Mexico, and uh, basically, get me out of here. Pick me up right now which they did. They took him out to the house, and all he, you know, he kept stating over and over again, they weren't human. They weren't human. And then later he would threaten, he would warn them that if you ever repeated anything I've told you 
I will say you are liars, and I will deny everything that you would say about me. And so uh, the families were paid visits by the military thereafter, also warning them to keep their mouths shut about the situation. Uh, Montoya would never mention this to any of his family, but, but nonetheless, we heard it from three separate witnesses that he indeed, you know, was there. He made such comments. He described what had transpired. And I will, it was a case that we, a witness that we first interviewed as far as regarding the uh, secondhand testimony. And, and Stan was always quick to ask anything new. Is there anything new that you've come up with regarding Montoya? Because we're talking of a high-ranking official. We're talking lieutenant governor. Then he would go on to become a high-ranking senator in the United States representing New Mexico. And so it, well, he would have been a tremendous witness. And Stan realized that we needed to always look for the high-ranking officials, the high-ranking officers, politicians, the media people involved, because these are the type of witnesses that would always up the importance of Roswell, that we weren't just dealing with uh, a rancher, for example, who first discovered uh, the, the wreckage. We weren't dealing with uh, children who would be later threatened because they happened to see the wrong thing at the wrong time, that type of thing. So, so Stan was often on the sidelines encouraging us that if it was a witness that we had learned of, had discovered, it was, he was always quick. What's new on so-and-so? What can you tell me you knew as far as regarding so-and-so? Have you, you corroborated, have you validated, uh, you know, anything you've been working as far as on that particular individual? So that's where the competition always became, we're working together. We're, we're, you know, we're working towards the same cause, and no matter how we parallel our approaches, our investigations, we still always merge, we still always come back that Roswell indeed was the crash of a craft from off the planet. What did Stanton think of your, your excavations at, at the uh, crash debris field? One of the, the major disputes I had with Stan was for having interviewed Jesse Marcel, senior, the head of intelligence, the man who was out there, the man who, as far as the first officer on the scene, that they never took him back to the scene of the crime, so to speak. And because Marcel had passed away in 1986, so it was a good three years before we started our own independent investigation. So I, I, I wouldn't be critical of Stan. I would just kind of always remind him. It's like, damn it, Stan, why didn't you do that? Why didn't you take him out there? That type of thing. And in, in, in Stan's defense, it was, it, was, it was quite honestly the fact that because they were spending so much time just tracking down witnesses, and it was at a time that we didn't have the Internet we, we had to, you know, actually doggedly track down witness leading to another witness and to another witness and so on before we finally would get to the, the primary, you know, witness we were looking for. Now you just, you know, type in a name and you can get the whole history of anybody. Right. Back then, 
we spent uh, Kevin Randall and I we used to we used to talk about we'd spend between the two of us a thousand dollars a month just on our phone bills. Wow! Tra- again, tracking down witnesses. And that's what Stan had been doing before us and was still doing. So it was totally forgivable that he found it more important to keep the race going, to keep as far as the effort going and tracking down the witnesses. So, again, when we were doing the archaeological work, Stan was always rooting. He was always, did you find anything? Is there anything I can help with? And uh, it was never a case of, oh, there they are again, trying to outdo me or come up with something that, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's never going to happen. He, um, again, our victory or vice versa would have been our victory. And, uh, again, I couldn't have had a, a greater ally in that regard. Did he ever think about moving out there, out to, to Roswell or to that area, just because he was so as you were, just so wrapped up with it, so involved, almost on a daily basis at that time. And that was often his excuse, Richard, that because he was so removed, you know, way up in the northeast corner of Fredericton, you know, New Brunswick, Canada, that um, he didn't get to New Mexico as often as he would have liked. I mean, on the average, we were getting to New Mexico five, six times a year. And Stan, you know, maybe once or twice. And so he often relied on us to fill that void, to, uh, to pick up those uh, opportunities with new witnesses and then update him, report after the fact that uh, we always had to stay in the agreement as well that if, if Stan came up with witnesses that more closely endorsed our scenario, he would immediately turn them over to us, and we in turn would do the same with Stan. All right, Don, I've got to take another quick time out. We'll uh, come back and delve further into the incredible life and work of Stanton Friedman. My guest, Don Schmidt, the author of UFO Secrets Inside Wright Patterson, stays with us. Back with more in a moment. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740. Or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. We are here with Don Schmidt. And uh, his latest is uh, in which he co-authors with uh, Thomas Carey is UFO Secrets Inside Wright Patterson. Eyewitness accounts from the real Area 51. We are paying tribute to the late Stanton Friedman who passed away last month, May 14th at the age of 84. Uh Getting back to Roswell for a moment. Ironic that uh, we had Stan write the foreword. Yes. Yes. How ironic indeed. And so um, little did we know, but we felt, you know, I, I have three messages from Stan on my answer machine over just the last month. And I saved them because... I sensed something was in the offing. Yes. And um, I just didn't believe it was going to be this soon. And Stan was ailing otherwise, and so we were more concerned that uh, he would uh, diminish in his uh, capabilities as uh, lecturing and doing interviews and, and that type of thing. 
but we certainly didn't believe it was going to go this quickly. Well, he had sort of officially, quote, unquote, retired because he, had, he was recovering from a, 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 that other heart attack. Uh, but he just couldn't stay away, could he? I mean, it was, such, it was no, just in no. his blood. And the, the saddest part of it is like someone just said to me the other day, the last place you want to die is in an airport in front of, you know, a, a hundred strangers. And that just for the sake of a few hours that he could have been home. And that right. was the, the other reason in his retiring that he felt his, that with his wife, Mariana, that he could finally spend, you know, some quality time with her. And yet, the, they were, the, 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 the audiences, the people were still pulling. They still, you know, wanted the, you know, the foremost authority to essentially come to their town, come to their city and enlighten them. And uh, he couldn't say no. Well, I guess you could say that really he, he, he died, you know, go, he went out doing what he loved, and that Precisely. was traveling to these places and talking about UFOs. And we should um, all be so lucky, Richard, yes. Yes, indeed. This is a short segment. We just got a couple of minutes here, but do you have a favorite personal Stanton Friedman story that's special to you? He had a wonderful sense of humor, and I used to tell him jokes all the time. And whenever we would be in a situation that was a little tense, I knew I could always break the ice, so to speak, and tell him a good joke. And he would laugh at times to the point he would start crying. <laughs> and no matter what, he just always looked on the bright side of things. A more positive person I have seldom encountered. And, you know, there were times that we would be in the field, working together, interviewing witnesses. There would be other times where we'd be racing to the airport at 4 o'clock in the morning from Roswell back up to Albuquerque. And uh, a, a quick story, I wasn't there, but I was told right after it had happened that Stan had just spoken in Amsterdam. And some lady had presented him with a gift of some chocolate brownies. And he was packing up his table and getting ready to head back to the airport. And uh, someone yells out to Mr. Mr. Friedman, Mr. Friedman, I hope you haven't, you're not taking those brownies with you, are you? And he said, well, no, it's, they look delicious. I'll have them on the way home. And she went, well, no, you, you, you can't, you can't. Well, well, why not, Stan asked. And she says, well, because they're full of marijuana. <laughs> and, and Stan, without missing a beat, he just, oh, my God, would have been hell getting through customs. <laughs> <laughs> when you said Amsterdam and brownies, I had a feeling I knew where that was going. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and Stan, he could be so naive at, at times. And then at other times, you know, uh, you know he, could, he could build a rocket ship. Right, right. I mean, imagine being a nuclear physicist and, and, and having that, that kind of a job, that kind of a career, uh, and then to give that up, to give that up to study UFOs. Was that a tough decision for him, do you know? Yes and no, because whether he had, uh, he had worked like, uh, with General Motors or even General Electric and uh, Rockwell, for example, there were a lot of 
uh, 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 broken contracts, he would describe. There were a lot of times that they felt they were on the brink of, uh, you know, a major breakthrough with some of the, uh, the new prototype, uh, new uh, engine and reactor devices and so on. And, uh, you know, again, he'd get a pink slip, like, uh, sorry, you know, your services are no, lo- no longer uh, needed. And I-, I think he may have had some reservations, but I think this was then making that quantum jump into where it actually was applied. And he then, in you know, seeking new propulsion and new technology for going to the stars. Here he was actually meeting it halfway. He was, you know, investigating the phenomena that actually had mastered the technology, had arrived here, and Stan was in the vanguard, you know, extending his hand and saying, welcome. And so uh, I think uh, he, he knew he was doing the right thing, and certainly we all would applaud and uh, and uh, are convinced he did the right thing. All right, Don, one final time out. We'll come back and uh, continue to pay tribute to the great man, Stanton Friedman, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.